This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Koto, g'day, and welcome to Free Left Turn here on 89.0 Independent Community Media. Today is Super Shot Saturday, and it's a big drive to get as many people out there vaccinated or start that process with either their first vaccination or their second vaccination. Um, at this time, we had just passed 100,000 vaccinations. So the target looks like it's going to be 150,000. So good on all those who participated today and good on those who have um, already been vaccinated. We just received a phone call around about midday from the local MP for Hamilton West asking if um, we're going to have our vaccination. But I said... Everybody in this household had already undertaken that. So we are all covered here. But interestingly, we still have out in there a lot of people who aren't vaccinated for various reasons. I appreciate people who may be a little bit um, weary, given that they will have um, some underlying health issue. And probably, perhaps in that space, it would be best to get um, medical advice from a GP regarding that if you feel that the vaccination may um, impact on your general health. I had a conversation with one of my clients yesterday exactly on that exact subject and said to that person when she said, oh, I may have to have the vaccination, however, I have a dread of any form of injection since the um, impact on my mental health so I my advice to that person was just to talk to your GP so if you got that fear that it may impact on your health at least you've had that conversation and not gone out and simply said no I'm not gonna um, have that back to the vaccination because the um, somebody's put something in it and they may be able to read my mind Interestingly, though, um, in the um, Stuff site, there was a, an article about one of the uh, Waikato mayors, Sandra Gowdy, and it says here, um, vaccination expert disgusted by Waikato mayors, no Pfizer stance. So what was that all about? And the article reads... The mayor of a, of a recent hotspot of COVID-19 scares has been dubbed massively irresponsible after revealing she has no plans to get the Pfizer vaccine. Thames Coromandel Mayor Sandra Gowdy admitted 
to stuff on Wednesday that she wasn't vaccinated. She twice hung up on stuff, but she said she is waiting for another COVID-19 vaccine, Novavax, not yet approved in New Zealand. She refused to say why she has made that call. And she's been criticised by Susie Wiles um, about Gowdy's ill-informed decision. Interestingly, I've in my in in the past and regarding community radio and in a former show which I co-hosted, one of my um, guests was that person, Sandra Gowdy, and to this day I would rate my interview with her as one of the most appalling. Um, interactions I've had with people in in the, in the community radio setup um, ever a, appallingly anti uh, anti labor and just appallingly anti left and so she is not the most well I thought she's more in, inflammatory would you would probably would describe her um, in her in her stance. And it was one, as I say, it was one of the worst interviews I've ever had. Uh, I could rate others here as well, but um, this whole idea of just just about labour bashing, labour bashing. Well, really, um, it's not. As far as I'm concerned, it was just a poor interview. And now we get this sort of carry on around uh, her not being wanting to be vaccinated because the she's after a particular type of vaccine however and that that sort of stance does jeopardize um, a lot of people regarding people around who don't want to be vaccinated just going back to what we said um super vaccination saturday it sounds like it has been rather and it's a success they're sort of trying to base it on a telethon model and if you if you recall um, the telethons of the past and running, raising money for this, set and thing. Now they're going about trying to see how many people will come through the doors today and get their vaccination. And hopefully we can push those numbers up because the percentage rates still are relatively low. Um, with probably Auckland doing the best as a city and the top of the north-south, I think, doing the best as a region um, and it is good to see that the Prime Minister has gone out and about the nation in places like the uh, East Coast, uh, Taranaki etc just trying to drum up that sort of vaccination um, vaccination support probably the wrong phrase turn of phrase here but trying to get people out encouraging people to just get vaccinated for the for the good of their communities uh, and it was good, particularly seeing her over the um, East Coast way, predominantly um, a large Maori population. And given the stats that Maori have taken, uh, not taken too well to the vaccination, um, just to drum up that sort of support and get numbers up there. Uh, I suspect with the lifting of levels, we'll um, have to reflect the higher uptake of the vaccine by Tangata Whenua. And the other good thing about the Prime Minister being over on the East Coast was there that she, she was there to watch the local team play against the visiting South Canterbury side. 
Um, so, yeah, and I watched a Heartland rugby um, YouTube um, program yesterday and saw her there. So, yeah, so she's around. She's been drumming up that support. People have been accusing her of um, AWOL and, and all that sort of stuff, uh, particularly with the, the, the afternoon briefings on the television where you're seeing mainly um, health, um, Chris Hipkins, uh, Grant Robinson, but she is definitely doing her role as Prime Minister and yeah, trying to drum up support or um, drum up, getting encouraging people to um, be vaccinated so we can beat this damn thing, um, Delta variant, that's um, cropped up in our community and it's still in our community here, even though we haven't had uh, many um, cases as of late and the fingers are crossed for us to return to level two because it's probably about time I went back to my office and did some other work instead of been staying here all the time. And yeah, 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 yeah. And I think it's just, um, I, I, I know we have to stay at home. I know we just try to keep the thing in check by keeping within our bubbles. However, I'd also like to go back to work and do some of what I'm, what I'm paid to do. But um, yeah, we need, we need, we actually we need to stay safe and and yeah, get over this over this particular hump. And if the, and if the Super Saturday is successful, um, hopefully we'll like hopefully we will see a um, a Freedom Day like they have had in the state of New South Wales. Yeah. So for for those who who have participated in Super Saturday Day, congratulations, and I hope you um, see yourselves as contributing to beating the Delta variant.
Last week we mentioned Harry Tam in relation to a gang, mem- gang member, he was one of two gang members given um, special exemption status to go around and talk to um, um, gang members around encouraging them to take up the uh, COVID vaccination. Interestingly, there was an article about Harry um, Tam in e- e Tangata. Um, it says Harry Tan still standing up for himself. It's a an interview he's, ha- he's had with um, Dale's husband uh, called Cordero. And it sort of starts, it sort of introduces itself like this. Harry Tam isn't in the habit of revealing much about himself, but it has been known for for years that he's a patch member of the mongrel mob, and therefore we can assume that he's mostly, perhaps always, been up to no good. Or can we assume that? Here's Harry in his cordero with Dale setting the record straight. And it goes and it talks about his early life, and he said he was born uh, born in Marston, or Whakaore Ore, and he's, his, his family owned a laundry there before moving to Wellington, where he was born. As you gather by his name, um, Harry's parents are Chinese. His father had brought his extended whanau through marriage to work in the Chinese laundry in Dunedin. There was a bit of a lag there before his mum could get um, into New Zealand because of the Chinese Revolution. He said we didn't have a normal upbringing. If you'd like to call it that, my father was probably one of the last opium users in the Chinese community in Wellington. Both my parents couldn't speak English. We just spoke Chinese at home. So that made it tough going to school with only two words, lollies and chocolate. He was, he said he struggled at school, they called him the old Jing Jong Chinaman stuff, which is uh, which is uh, appalling to my way of thinking when, when we're trying to be inclusive. He said he went to Rongatai College and he got a couple of subjects in school cert and was only one in my class to get into the sixth form. And he goes on to say um, the 60s and the 70s was a time of the Vietnam War, yes we agree with that, and the protest movement. So he said he became politically aware. He started to read um, left-wing literature, such as Karl Marx's Das Kapital, where he describes the economics of capitalism, which I found fascinating. Interestingly that he's read that. I've read the abridged version of Das Kapital. I've got a bigger version, which I've not attempted to read here at home. But I I would wonder if if you would... um, ask people, particularly those who slang off against the likes of um, gang members like like Harry, and ask them, have you have you actually read um, Das Kapital? Um, but you see, the person you're slagging off as has, and yeah. So he says he, um, he uh, read Das Kapital. Uh, he he um, he talks about a friend called um, Bill Mung. He's a he's a Burmese pol- um, pol- political refugee who came to New Zealand after a military takeover there, and um, he said that um, Bill was working with Na Tamatoa. Um, people will recall that um, uh, that group from that from that era, 
and uh, that he's crashed at his pad with in Wellington, um, or set up a crash pad with for junior gang members, and that's how it's really where it starts the road of Harry being involved in the mongrel mob. He, inter- he interacted with the mob. He, could, he said he could reconnect with some of his old schoolmates from in Wellington. And um, that when he was growing up, um, it wasn't until I grew older that I realised what was happening. Families were struggling with accommodation, whether they were in rental accommodation or, or whatever it was, and then they would have to move to another property and they'd no longer be at my school. That was talking about people that he knew from school, and then they weren't at school, and he sort of worked out that um, people just couldn't afford the rental, so they were moving on. He talks about his friend Bill running a business, um, newspaper agencies, and delivering bread. This mean this was a means of providing um, work for young um, gang members, and 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 this was and I was like 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 Harry, and he was doing quite well from that. Uh, Bill used the proceeds from the business from these businesses to find to fund people to do community and youth work. He describes Bill Mung as somebody who knew James K. Baxter, somebody who um, knew one of the Governor Generals, I think Bernard Ferguson, because I think he was the one who arranged for him to come here. And then, and then he would, um, then, then there was, he, he then um, Harry says in here because of his involvement with the gang, because it's all to do with. Um, Probably more like, and that's social work. That's um, his path into the mob wasn't one of crime. It was always one of how do we develop people. So I don't know. People just get this image of gangs, crime, gangs, crime. But Harry's road into the gang was one to do with community work and his association with Bill Mung. So you can't always um, make generalisations about people and saying that they were. Um, that their only way to become a gang member was to commit some form of criminal activity. He talks about his family. Um, Harry describes himself as, as a relatively physically small person, and he found it really tough standing up for himself. And because because he calls the, the Maori boys were a lot bigger than me, but he found that also um, that the Europeans were the most nasty when it came to racism. Dale, husband, asked, asked Harry a comment or question. You've read Karl Marx, and of course China went through its revolution. And pre-European, many of our people would have had socialist rather than capitalist tendencies. When you reflect on what you read as a young guy, what do you make of the communist regime in China, and where do you position yourself in that regard? And Harry says, first and foremost, what I learned from Marx was his economic analysis of capital and ownership. Where does ownership come from? Um, Marx's, sorry, Marx's analysis was that nature was there, land was there, and people lived on the land and used natural resources. And somehow capitalism came in and introduced ownership. When you start to talk about Maori and the connection with the land and resources, it's the same. Where did the ownership come from? As for communism, it was very much an experiment and probably a failed experiment. But what we forget, forget is that China went through a period of history in its history where Europeans and Japanese tried to colonise China. Um, it's, we, and how gullible we are now in accepting that democracy is a right thing, it may well be, but the British never gave the Hong Kong people democracy. So uh, in looking through this and reading this article, um, Harry Tam strikes you as a 
well, I think you could talk so it's quite a well-read and intelligent individual, despite his background coming with, with not coming from a, a family who didn't speak English into somebody who can read this intellectual works such as Das Kapital, and yeah, and basically, and be part of a part of a, may, a gang got into a into a, into a gang. Not through crime, but through um, the wanting to to be in that sort of involved in that sort of community work type role. So looks can be deceiving. He he he's he's um, he's met with former Prime Minister Muldoon. I think he may be one at his funeral. There's a picture in this article of him standing in behind. Uh, Robert Muldoon's wife, Thea. Yeah, so he is. He's an. He's an interesting. He's an interesting um, person in the fact that you don't really associate him with criminality. You was. You probably more relate. He more relates to somebody who is. You could almost say like a social worker, community worker, as opposed to a the, what they call the hard nuts in the. Um, in the gangs that we have currently, he's a um, he's a life life member of the gang here, and it says here as we as we read through, stake here has played a significant role not just with a mob but all gangs in this country. Many gang peoples have gone through institutions and have been taught to be violent because they themselves were the victim of state violence. These things are starting to come out in the Royal Commission of Inquiry into Abuse in Care. And unfortunately, the likes of Simeon Brown and Judith Collins don't want to know that. They don't want to know the truth, so they use these groups of people as political tools. And they're not political tools. We need to engage with gangs. That's why that the gangs have been marginalised. However, it's it's. I think I think the um, whole vaccine, the COVID nineteen, the Delta variant um, stuff. Has, has made us realise, and a lot of people realise, that we need to engage with people. It doesn't matter who they are, we need to engage with them to move things forward. And one of the groups, I've always, I've sort of been drumming this in to my own head, that we need to, gangs need to be engaged with too, because they're part of the community. And they may have ideas which may be useful in getting, as I said, the Maori percentage up around the vaccination uptake. And I think I think the Prime Minister probably Prime Minister and the government has recognised that Harry Tam is one of those sorts of people who can do that because of his, his lifelong membership with the Mongrel mob and his connections there and the work he's done there. Yeah. So he's uh, um there's a lot more to this person than just a ga- a, a, mem- a gang member. He's I, I think he's a well read I think he's a rather intelligent individual. And I think people who, who criticize him should re- actually ha- take a close look particularly at this article in E Tangata, and tells us a little bit more about the, the man, Harry Tang, and I would invite people to have a look at it themselves. I'm looking for a girl who has no face She has no name Oh, And so I search within this lonely place, knowing that I won't find her. 
Independent Community Media, Free FM 89.0. Congratulations, New Zealand. 129,995 vaccinations on Super Shot Saturday. We did ourselves proud, and, we, and for those who have already been given their double dose, or those who took up their second dose to yesterday, and those who took up their first um, dose, give themselves a mighty big clap on the back. And it's interesting to read that um, the numbers taken up amongst Tangata Whenua. We talked about Harry Tam before, and there were other things that I felt may just need further explanation regarding Harry Tam. Um, the more current one is this, um, he talks about... Um, actually taking Winston Peter to task after the former um, MP, no, the former MP, former cabinet minister um, in the previous government had accused Harry Tam of being the, one of the people who was going around Northland with these three, with these, with, with another person, a woman, but it turned out to be two women instead, and Harry Tam said, had basically said he'd never been up there. So he's taking Winston Peters to task, and good on Harry Tam for that. I mentioned previously about Harry Tam having a connection to an organisation called Na Tamatoa. Sort of elaborate on that, but I thought it may be a good time just to do that and 
and ask yourself who who or what was Nga Tamatoa? The background to Nga Tamatoa is the early 70s, actually 1970, when Ranganui Walker, the author of Nga Toi Toi, or Years of Anger, organised a young leaders conference in Auckland. And it said here, quote, some of the more militant attendees used the conference to form a new organisation to push for Maori determination. Uh, originally called the Maori Liberation Front, the name was soon um, Maoriified, or it's a horrible word, to the more ethnically correct Nga Tamatoa, or Young Warriors. And their particular ideology, or I should say Nga Tamatoa's ideology, was Maori nationalism, with a strong undercurrent of Marx, so ideally suited to this show, that, that comic, that comic. Uh, one of the leading members of Naatamatoa was Donna Awateri, and you probably recall her as a former MP. And she said in 1982, I spent hard committed years working with Naatamatoa um, through, to, through to Marx's economic theory. It doesn't seem to make sense. Other members of Naatamatoa included the likes of. Tidifai Harawera, and that's the um, mother of Honi Harawera, um, and he's still got that strong values around um, na Maori nationalism. You, you can hear it, you can hear it in the way he says. And she was part of the Socialist Action League. The others included Sir Jackson, uh, Don Awatiri, we mentioned, and Rebecca Evans, and they also were associated with uh, socialist. Unity Party members. Others who included um, were Tamati Tamaiti and a person called Cora Davis. And the reason why Cora Davis's name has been mentioned, she travelled to China with, a, with the first of several UN, NZUSA sponsored delegations to the People's Republic. So she, so that's why I mentioned her name. Uh, there were, um, and there were others. It was a, it was kind of a breakthrough organisation because it had a more of a stronger militant approach. Previous, uh, previous um, Maori groups tended to be rather on the um, lighter side when it came to activism, but these these particular this particular organisation very much militant, and a lot of the people who got connections with that group are still around, very much around today. And as I say, the one that name it does um, hit you right in the middle of the eyes is um, to defy Harawera. Its basic policy for Nga Tamatoa revolves around opposing racism in New Zealand and on the international front. As a group, however, our, their efforts have been centred primarily around fighting against the inherent racism and oppression of the systems which operate in New Zealand. That is the education system, the judicial system, the economic system, the system of land tenure, and the system of law enforcement. They sort of, they sort of came around about the same time as the land marches of the mid to early 70s, early to mid 70s, and they were more the radical ones, or the, well, the other groups that belonged to that land march tended to be 
a little bit, as I said, on the more not-so-radicalised front. Connor says here about um, what, what their view is um, around what, one, of the, one, of the, one of their philosophies is, what is required is a strong socialist party that can identify the issues that and will commit itself to fighting to overcome and destroy the present capitalist system and replace it with a social system that is just and cares about people. So this is the, this is the group that Harry Tam had a connection with um, in those early years after he left school in the 70s. There is a link to this group with the um, the Polynesian Panthers, and you would have seen that program on television. I've never, I never actually watched it because I missed it. Um, talking about a little bit of the history of that of the of the Polynesian movement, and it is interestingly that Harry Tam was also behind the formation of a Polynesian Panthers branch in uh, Wellington, I believe. So it's an interesting history. It's an interesting history of that time. It shows a more of a radicalised Maori um, viewpoint as opposed to more staid and conservative types. And it does have its roots roots in this, in this particular area. Like, um, importantly, you always hear the, hear the line, honour the treaty, honour the treaty. And, and Nā Tamatoa was one of those organisations which pushed for um, the honouring of the treaty which was which has been breached on a number of number to, number of times through the through our history and I, and I think when we talk about the warts and all history of New Zealand um, which which is what what the education system wants to is trying to move towards a warts and all groups like Na Tamatai should be mentioned there in the forefront of um, around particularly around Maori, Maori radicalism and, um, and the fight against um, injustices that have happened to Maori. So yeah, Nā Tamatoa. If you w- want to find, um, read a little bit more about Nā Tamatoa or um, wanting to get an idea of, of their roots, the works by Ranganui Walker would probably be where I would, would direct you towards. A Shanghai noodle factory Place where I once used to be Nowhere doing nothing People there were made of steel Tiny cars in one big wheel Talking, never learning Had to make a break 
this month we recognise the the anniversary anniversary of the passing of two influential left wing leaders, uh, Ernesto Che Guevara and Thomas Sankara. Everybody knows Che Guevara, or should, or should do. Um, his image appears on uh, T-shirts, walls, even tattoos. Uh, he's the one of the key figures in the Cuban uh, Revolution, um, and a, and a great mate, or the great mate of uh, Fidel Castro. He was Argentinian by birth, um, but he was a naturalised, or he got Cuban citizenship after the revolution. And after the revolution, he was kind of he was part of the part of the government. They talk about him being minister of the economy, the Cuban economy, minister of industry. He went to fight in the Belgium Congo, and then he reappeared in a commanding force in um, Bolivia in the 1967. And, that, and the date of his death has been put at the, the 9th of October 1967. And it says here, quote, uh, October the 9th comm commemorates another day since the death of the legendary Che Guevara, the guerrilla leader, and ended history as an icon of the revolution. And people ask themselves... Why was he in Bolivia? And, the, and the, it's quoted in saying he firmly believed that Bolivia's geographical or geographic location was ideal suited to start a revolution, that here is the heart of South America from which the movement could spread throughout the region. Um, Bolivia, it's, it was a, it's a, it's a interesting country or interesting history where you make it almost make this joke of a it's almost a, a junta or junta every every five minutes and it was backed usually by the USA or CIA international corporations had a had a had a big say in the nation and you'd only have to look at um a particular movie called the quantum of solace one of the, one of the James Bond series of movies where when all, all those sort of things come together, you've got a corrupt military people in trying to run the show or trying to take over. You've got corporation involved in there. You've got the CIA involved. So classic Bolivian makeup. Now nowadays, it's more it's more more of a socialist nation. But the question was again, why was he there? And it was because they say it's because it was a a geographically suited to start the revolution. Because of Che Guevara's presence in, in Bolivia, Cuban, Bolivian, Peruvian and Argentinian citizens joined together, 47 fighters in all, and they, they identified themselves as the Bolivian National Liberation Army and were backed up by special support networks that did not fight with weapons. Work of this network was to keep them informed and learn them if necessary. So there was a lot of armed conflict beginning in March of 1967 and with the with the Bolivian army but I think the back of it was broken when some of the members of the Liberation Army were captured and tortured and they gave they identified that Che Guevara was definitely in command of the group and by the time of October <clears throat> the force was largely weakened because the number had, had perished in, in, in conflicts with the Bolivian army and on October the um, um, 9th, sorry, excuse me, sorry, that, 
Shea fought his last fight against the army uh, commanded by Gary or Captain Gary Prado. He and his followers were captured in the Choro Gorge and were taken to the area known as La Nigua and Velagron where they were where they spent the last hours and they were executed by the um, military there. And his his remains were hidden by the military, although his diary made its way back to Fidel Castro, who published it. So that the reason why he was there was to start a revolution. But he tragically died in a hail of bullets. It kind of reminds you of the, um, the Butch Cassidy and the Sundance can also ended up in that country um, for whatever reason, probably for more um, criminal-based reasons as opposed to starting a revolution like Che Guevara did. And they they also died in a hail of bullets in Bolivia. So, a uh, couple of, yeah, interestingly, October the 9th, um, remembering the, or the anniversary of the death of Che Guevara in Bolivia. Now, the other person I'm referring to, and I'll just... This might, I hope this comes up, but it's just taking a little bit of time to to warm up, is a gentleman called Thomas Sankara. And Thomas Sankara was a military leader of a, a nation called Guinea Faso. And I don't know why this is not coming up. But he was, if you want to know a little bit about Guinea Faso, the country was formerly known as Upper Volta in Western Africa, and part of the um, French, what they call French um, West Africa. And he was a, it's a landlocked country that's known formerly Upper Volta, and its capital city is Ugaduga. Why, why I say Ugaduga? Is because my old Conrad, or radio Conrad, uh, Martin Gallagher, w- went there as part of a parliamentary delegation in the time he was in the government in the early part of the century and went to that place called Ugadugu. But I'm just just having a little bit of problems bringing up the article that I saw about Thomas Sankara because my computer doesn't want to play ball. Here we are. It does play ball this time. I, I can brought this article up from Telstra Tal, English, and it talks about Bikini Faso remembering the the passing of Thomas Sankara. He was the um, socialist president of of Bikini Faso. He wasn't. He was um, a the leader for four four years, or had a four year government. He, he said he built. 350 schools and de- developed a mass literacy campaign which increased Bikini Faso's literary rate, literacy rate by 60%. But during the month of October 1987, he was murdered. So, and it goes on, we'll just read we'll a little bit about it. Sankara came to power through a revolutionary movement that received broad popular support from a perspective of national renewal. He named Bikini Faso Upper Volta, which means the Country of Men of Integrity. It's actually quite a good name. So that's it. Country of, of Men of Integrity. He suspended rural taxes and promoted the ownership reforms to reduce poverty rates and increase national production. He also built 350 schools, which we mentioned earlier, and had this massive literacy program. 
To guarantee gender equity, he prohibited female genital mutilation, forced marriages and polygamy to end of those. Thanks to his, this approach, during his four-year government, the number of girls in schools increased and many women held government positions. Sankara also strengthened the national public health system, which allowed that 2.5 million children receive vaccine, vaccines against meningitis, yellow fever and measles. In addition, the socialist leader confronted corrupt officials and built railways nationwide. To avoid the influence of International Monetary Fund, or the IMF, and the World Bank in this country, Sankara nationalised natural resources and promoted the reduction of foreign debt, which she considered an instrument of imperial submission. However, on the 15th of October 1987, a French-backed um, commandos attacked Ugadugu Entente Council and, and Thomas Sankara and his collaborators, and some of his collaborators were killed. And that's a rather sad indictment. You have somebody who wants to bring their country forward, and and those the powers that be don't like that. So, what's best? What's way to what way to do that is to get rid of them, and usually violently. And we saw that with Che Guevara in a different way. He he was leading a, he was leading different to start a revolution and a person who had commenced a revolutionary process of modernising and, and giving equal rights to people, his life has ended at the end of a bullet. Interestingly, he makes a quote, a quote that we can, we can sort of say comes from him. Revolutionary ideas can be assassinated, but their ideas not. They always remain in the spirit of their people. And it's like um, people can always say you can be a, a person with a revolutionary mind, an outspoken individual, they can always be silenced by the, um, by the by a bullet or the executioner's blade or whatever, but that their words remain very much alive and with us. And in, in, in thinking and in thinking what Thomas Sankara had said, I, I will just quote the words of one Sophie Scholl in saying, "Stand up for what you believe in, even if you are standing alone." And that's and. Free left turn remembers the passing of both Che Guevara and Thomas
Free FM 89.0. Tui at Nareo o te Hapori. Episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.